bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. So recently in the province of Alberta, there was a directive came out uh, for provincial parks that clarified some aspects of uh, provincial law and and provincial parks policy regarding hunting and trapping in provincial parks and recreation areas, specifically to do with the use of bait for bear hunting and trapping and the use of dogs for hunting uh, birds and uh, cougars. So there's been a bit of stuff on social media and the news where um, some groups in Alberta are not overly happy uh, kind of with that. I want to learn a little bit more about this from the perspective of the province of Alberta's Wildlife Act and kind of like what, what this means as a park policy directive. So joining me on this show to help provide some perspective on that is Matt Basco. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing really well, Mark. Yeah, everybody knows Matt from uh, other episodes that we've done. Matt's the Director of Wildlife and Licensing for the province of Alberta. So I reached out and he agreed to come on the Round Canada podcast here to kind of fill us in on some thoughts on this park policy and how it ties into the Wildlife Act and stuff. So break this, this topic down. What exactly has come about here? Sure. So there's been some regulations and parks policies and directives in the past that had to do largely with the use of dogs or being accompanied by a dog while you're in a park or a wildland area and generally speaking a dog was basically required to be on leash no longer than two meters in many of these places Um, at the same time there are some opportunities by which black bears may be hunted in some wildland areas primarily that there was some agreement in principle not to have baiting in them but baiting basically was grandfathered as per the wildlife reg last year there's a new parks directive this year basically that allows some flexibility around that as well So uh, in terms of the Wildlife Act itself, there's really no contradiction in terms of what users, what hunters, uh, what other recreation users may or may not do. That's all part and parcel of hunting regulations. So this specifically applies to access and the types of uses that different uh, parks visitors or visitors to wildland areas can do. So in terms of the perspective of wildlife management and dealing with hunting per se, we often have found ourselves in a position where there's a perception of sort of an asymmetrical antipathy. And what what I mean by that is uh, one particular user group may be concerned about the activities of another user group, yet that other user group may or may not be concerned at all. Um, So there's a bit of an asymmetry. So when you 
speak about someone hunting within a park area there may be some other users that aren't familiar with hunting how hunting occurs um, different points around regulations ethics and safety that may that may not be clear so i think the policy in terms of allowing for example bear baiting in areas that are governed by parks or as wildland areas the policy refers to that any areas that within a wildlife unit management unit that allows black bear baiting you can hunt in that wildland area and you can start you know baiting two weeks before the season and uh, you're consistent under the wildlife act and you know you identify your bait station with everything else that's required and you have to clean it up after the season is done and you can do so only in a wildland park so okay so i think what this does it it allows the opportunity via zonation and careful timing that allows bear hunting in these areas to prevent any sort of user conflict yeah uh part part of what i've seen out there in the public discussions about this um, really ties into what you said about um, different user groups perceptions one of the the conclusions that i've came to is i think a lot of people non-hunters think that protected areas provincial parks whether it's a wilderness area in British Columbia, uh, recreation area, um, those sorts of things, that hunting is not a legitimate use in that on that that land base. And so when folks are hearing this, it it almost kind of like me. Their level of concern is is that Parks Canada is allowing hunting in a national park, and people are going like, no, that we know that's that's not legitimate. So in your experience, is there anything do you think in the non-hunting public that there's a perception that hunting is not a legitimate or should not take place in a provincial park or wildland area? Yeah, we, we get a fair amount of concern regarding provincial wildland areas and provincial parks and, and hunting in these areas. And Historically, in many wildland parks in Alberta and also provincial grazing areas and leases, we have had historical hunting use in many of these areas. And because it wasn't widely, you know, advertised or known, I don't think people really understood or realized the extent by which it has occurred in the past. Also, I think that there's a, there's a temporal separation between activities so when there's big big game hunting for example in wildland parks it may occur at a time of year when most of the established recreational you know non-hunting use doesn't occur uh, also i think that there's a there's a spatial separation as well people that tend to visit parks and and uh, wildland areas they may or may not stick to establish trails they may use 
infrastructure that's within the park, staging areas, camping areas, whereas hunters may or may not do that as much. So I think that there is a bit of spatial and temporal se uh, separation, but I also think that there's a perception that hunting s somehow debases the value of a wildland area or a provincial park. And I think that mm. that's something that we have to be very cognizant of and we have to really understand what what hunting is and what hunting isn't in terms of a legitimate use of nature and given areas. So is predation, you know, anthropogenic predation or natural predation something that we recognize as being a legitimate use or legitimate activity? Is it something that we can manage safely where we don't have antipathy between user groups? And can we use education and enforcement in order to regulate that in a way by which different user groups will respect each other's use? And I think this policy directive that Parks has implemented is a really good opportunity to be able to do that. No, that makes um, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. And I sometimes think that maybe people think that a protected area, parks, national park, provincial park, is synonymous with the concept of a wildlife sanctuary in, in that the primary purpose of the designation of that, that jurisdiction on the landscape is it's like a preserve like for wildlife, right? right. Um, as opposed to it was given a designation um, for public recreational use, there would be some you know, provisions put in place, maybe from some infrastructure, parking lots, washroom facilities, some trails. Um, but then generally those non-compatible industries, logging and mining and, and, and stuff were were not part of, of those land designations, but they weren't necessarily, you know, like wildlife sanctuaries per se. But I often kind of think that when it comes to a provincial park, they're called protected areas, that they're protected for wildlife and so people are like, well, why are you allowing hunting, you know, in them when it's uh, there to protect the wildlife? So, um, yeah, I think, you know, while the, the mandate with respect to wildlife is generally covered by the Crown in the public trust by folks in fish and wildlife policy. I think that's that's pretty key to understanding how wildlife uh, across both private and public lands uh, are managed. Provincial parks, national parks are all areas within, you know, the jurisdiction of Alberta. The boundaries are largely artificial. Wildlife will cross, wildlife will move in. So when we look at populations, we look at populations as a whole, regardless of their uh, geographic distinction through political lines or anything like, like that. So gotcha. I, I think the the notion by which provincial parks or wildland areas are wildlife sanctuaries is misinterpreted i would agree with you completely i think these areas are designed for uh, so many different purposes uh, wildlife and the management thereof and maintaining sanctuary for some species is part of that mandate as well but not for all parks for example there's very few provincial parks that you can hunt in. Some of the hunting is grandfathered, like in the castle. And there's a number of wildlife, wildland areas 
in the Northwest, for example, that uh, have had hunting within them for many years. So I think that there is a culture of hunting and multiple use within many of these areas. This policy directive doesn't apply to all wildland areas or to all provincial parks, just to some of them. And I think the changes are act actually relatively minor. Like for example, cougar hunting in Castle Provincial Park, you can only hunt there in the wildlife management unit in the zone where there's an open season. The dog is used within that WMU. The owner of the dog is still bound to buy a license and follow the hunting regulations. And a bit of an extra is the dog has to be tracked by a GPS, which is pretty well the norm for cougar hunters nowadays. Even though the dog is off leash, Park's directive is such that the dog is able to return to the handler on command. And when they're within 200 yards or 183 meters of a facility area or, you know, excluding trails and, and so forth or away from different staging and trail areas, the dog has to be leashed or, in, or you know, in the uh, kennel. So I think these are pretty fair in terms of having that spatial separation. And cougar hunting, for the most part, occurs in, from December till February. So there's that temporal s s separation as well. And I think that that use is, is probably quite compatible with many of the other uses within that landscape. Yeah, there may be like a few, you know, backcountry skiers, you know, those those sorts of snowshoeing, uh, wintering, wintering activities. But I would have to assume that most of the parks and recreation areas that the peak of your non-hunting recreation uses through the summer the summer months and tapers off fall when kids go back to school seems to be the general pattern in 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 our country for uh, uh outdoor activities one of the and i'm glad you clarified the thing about the requirement in the policy f that the, the the gps callers on the dogs are a parks directive that the hunter is able to recall and know where the animals are in relation to these uh, other facilities to be able to get the dogs and and restrain them and and retrieve them re recall them uh, are, are the proper terms because some of the things I've seen in um, the public discussions about this is people are saying that Putting GPS collars on hound dogs is unethical. It's not uh, fair chase hunting because I believe people that don't know about hound hunting or even upland game bird hunting where you use collars, the primary purpose is not for the advantage of that you're finding the prey animal and getting to it quicker. It's a safety thing so that you actually know where your dogs are in the yeah. land if you if you lose hearing them and you're able to get them, retrieve them safely if you start to get concerned about the time of day or crossing, or, you know, they might be wanting to cross a big river or something like that. So, Oh, and, and if anyone's ever heard of hounds, especially more than one bay, uh, you can hear that. You can hear that from a long, long way away. <laughs> so kilometers away so, in some valleys. Yeah. So you can uh, you can usually, you know, hear where your dog is. But there's all sorts of times where you want the exact location of your dog. At the same time, and I, I think something else that 
many people don't think about it is if your hounds are baying and they're, they're, there's an animal at bay, then you want to get there as quickly as possible. You want to minimize the stress upon that animal. And, uh, and, and as you hunt it, you want to be able to dispatch that animal as quickly and humanely as possible. It's, it's something that not only to track your dog, but to hunt as efficiently as possible. I don't think it offers any sort of advantage other than to find your dog and get there a little bit quicker. Yeah. Like it's not like a, it's not like a computer game where the hunter can see the dog and the animal on the GPS screen and kind of guide them, you know, or whatever. So yeah, I, I, I just think that was an important part I wanted to bring up in this conversation was, was the sort of the mandating of the use of the GPS caller specific to this part directive is not something that's being done as an unethical or unfair hunting practice specifically to the to the park um, it's actually being done as a <clears throat> an extra precaution for safety and that hunters that are in the parks are able to retrieve and recall their dogs quickly so and and if your dog does run you know across some infrastructure or a, a trail that for example cross-country users are on and you can recognize that the dog owner handler is obligated to get their dog out of there so if you know that to occur and you're able to summon your dog back and get your dog back then that's another opportunity to use that color in the location in order to try to prevent or minimize any sort of user conflict you know one of the, i read in a in a news story where I think it was somebody that didn't didn't agree with with using dogs to hunt um cougars was trying to sort of uh in incite like a bunch of fears in in people reading the article saying that hunting dogs uh and and this would pertain to upland game bird hunting dogs as well is that they just will indiscriminately chase anything so if you got dogs loose tracking an animal a bird or cougar they're just gonna randomly start chasing other other wildlife and stuff and and i think you really have to know hound hunting whether it's birds ducks pheasants or um cougars or or, or whatever that these dogs are highly trained highly specialized yeah. to do one yeah. thing and one thing only and they're trained so that they don't get off the track of a <clears throat> of a cougar and start following a deer or that they don't get off the scent of a pheasant and start chasing a rabbit or something right, right? <clears throat> things that that you know so I'm, I'm not sure what your thoughts around that oh, but, I, but uh, I thought ups. that some of that information that was put out there I think was was not truthful information uh, it was kind of yeah. designed uh, to uh, get people uh, yeah absolutely uh and the purpose of a game dog is to focus on game species. You know, I run a bird dog. My bird dog doesn't chase red-winged blackbirds. Uh, it doesn't tree squirrels. It focuses on game birds, and that's waterfowl and upland birds. And throughout its training, and my dog's eight right now, my dog will blink right past any other bird or non-game species. <laughs> and he's done so because there's been negative you know, uh, reinforcement along the way, or, you know, he's so keen on game species and that's been positively reinforced and he wouldn't be a good hunting dog if he would be distracted by other species. And 
it's as much of um, a concern to a hunter or a non-hunter if someone's game dog is coursing after a non-game species that's harassment of wildlife so hunters especially hunters with dogs whether or not it's a cougar houndsman or a hounds person or or, or a waterfowl hunting retriever or an upland game bird with a pointer. These birds are highly specialized, highly trained, and they have a job. And it's extremely rare for them to course after other species. I think listeners that listen to the Round Canada podcast know that periodically cover stories from across the country of confrontations and attacks of wild animals and, and people. And in the last episode, I kind of gave a summary of a few things that happened over the course, the late course of the summer and early part of the fall. And one of the common threads that I pointed out there in these animal wild animal attacks uh, in Canada is the vast majority of them involve a dog an untrained pet dog that's not leashed and that is a is a contributing factor in 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 an attack and um, some wildlife harassment cases we see it's the same thing it's an untrained pet animal that's not leashed that's that you know is chasing wildlife so I think the fears uh, if you are listening and you're not a hunter on um, you know parks is clarifying the use of hunting dogs in parks and protected areas in Alberta consistent with the wildlife act that this uh, fear of that, you know, they're going to be chasing everything that's in the park is just, just not, not probably not, not truthful, not a reality to worry about. There part of that directive as well involves hunting game birds. If your game bird is actively, or if your if your dog is actively hunting game birds, there's dogs that, like pointers, like an English pointer will range because they run like crazy. They will range quite far. Many hunters I know that will run uh, a big running pointer will use GPS on their dogs. They'll use beepers that beep really loudly when the dog is on point. The folks with flushing dogs, they work really closely. So the worst thing for a hunting dog is that, especially for a bird dog, is that you have zero control over it then it just becomes something that you can't work with most of the time many hunters that run big you know pointing dogs will use a gps or will use some kind of signaling uh, uh, device to let them know where you are i you know i run in an area by which i can put on an, an air tag on the collar of my dog and so if he makes a really long retrieve or he's lost you know, behind a, a, a copse of willows or something like that, even though he's a few hundred meters away. If he's taking his time, then I know exactly where he is. So I don't want him running onto a highway or anything like that as well. Um, yeah, great. Those are all, those are all good points. Ho hopefully those are valuable to listeners maybe that, you know, don't, don't know a lot about uh, the story or maybe just heard kind of uh, parts of, parts of it from, from one side. Now, uh, one one issue that I just want to come back to uh, on the use of bait for hunting bears. So this is the the parks directive is clarifying the use of that consistent with the Wildlife Act and hunting elsewhere in the province of Alberta where baiting is allowed, like specific wildlife management units. 
am I correct in my interpretation that you can't use bait in all wildlife management units in Alberta, especially where you have grizzly, grizzly bear, bears. black bear overlap? Because that's the case in British Columbia. We yeah. can't do it anywhere because we have grizzly bears everywhere. Yeah, it's the so, it's it's the same here. So first okay. of all, you cannot uh, bait black bears in provincial parks whatsoever. So the use of bait for black bear hunting can only occur in a wildland park, and that wildland park has to be within a wildlife management unit that allows hunting of black bears with bait. So we have a separation between grizzly range and black bear range. And there's an overlap, of course, but any time grizzly bear and black bear range overlap is where we don't allow baiting for obvious reasons. Gotcha. So yeah. that that's part of this regulation as well, as well, or this directive as well. So you can bait in wildland park, but that wildland park is within a WMU that allows the hunting of black bears with bait. Okay. Okay. Separated from grizzly bear no, areas. That's... And, and you could start. That's good clarification. Yeah. And you could start two weeks before the beginning of the open season to get a pattern of, of bait use. And then it ha that, as soon as the hunting season is over, then, you know, you have 14 days to to take everything out, your blinds and the bait station and everything else. And the bait station, while it's in use, has to be marked and identified uh, to that particular hunter. So, yeah, again, I think maybe some information that was being put out there in, in the public forum of just kind of like that this was a across the board regulation, all provincial parks that this, this was going to be allowed in. But uh, like Matt's saying, it's very specific to a wildlife management unit where it's already authorized in a separation unit. Black bears are away from grizzly bears. So yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, that's a good point to raise. Now, knowing that this is an authorized hunting practice in specific areas in Alberta, Maybe from your experience, speak to a little bit about this fear that was being put out there that allowing the use of bait goes against what recreation users are told about, you know, making sure that bears can't get to food and become habituated and, and causes, uh, you know, a, a safety issue sort of thing. I know in my mind there's some different things happening here between bears that are getting into garbage and unsecured attractants around where people live um, versus when they randomly find something in a wildland area like a dead moose even, right? Is there any, I guess, legitimacy to the concern of bears and their habituation to human food from bear hunting um, bait stations that you've seen anywhere else in your experience in Alberta and other other WMUs like no there there really hasn't I think what you want to do with bears or any other species uh, in order to prevent human wildlife conflict for the most part is to eliminate any probability of habituation that usually of involves attractants and the attractants the, the interesting part about this is the there are attractants both natural and artificial. Natural attractants occur in nature. Uh, an, a, a, you know, an ungulate or a beaver dies, its carcasses in the 
in the woods and and a bear finds it and consumes it. That's a very natural level of attractant. The attractants that we're most worried about that influence habituation are attractants that are around where people live or recreate regularly. So any sort of attractants, apple trees, uh, orchards, uh, people's unpicked gardens, um, waste material that's left unsecured uh, within the town, um, within industrial sites where waste and attractants aren't secured or aren't cleaned up, those areas are pretty well danger zones because the bear will learn that these particular areas, areas that people live, are areas by which they can obtain food. And I think that there, there's probably a behavioral difference when a bear finds food that is away from people. is It's in an area that is relatively secluded and the bear doesn't associate this particular attractant to human beings or infrastructure that human beings. So that, I think, is something theoretically that occur. The type of food, a bucket okay. of donuts, for example, or fried chicken or something else like that, I don't know whether or not there's a similarity in terms of identifying that particular food or taste with something that a bear may or may not be attracted to in an area with people. I think that's that's probably a, a bit of a, a, a greater leap in terms of what may or may not occur. I think the use of bait in for for black bears is probably relatively benign if it, if it occurs within a given period of time. If it ends very quickly, if the bear doesn't associate that with people in any way, and I think that's that's probably relatively safe. If there was a bait or a tractant and was used a lot in an area around people, and the and the bear made an easy switch from a bait site to a campsite, and people's you know barbecues and so forth, it would be pretty nasty. But I I don't think the use of bait, and that's this is an opinion more than you know something that's mm -hmm. proven in the literature. <laughs> so you know I could be completely wrong, but I have not heard of habituation occurring with respect to human-wildlife conflict by the use of bait. Certainly, using bait when you're black bear hunting is a form of habituation. You want that bear coming to the bait. The It wouldn't be a problem at all if any bear that came to that bait was harvested. But more often than not, bears that do come to the bait are passed up. I don't know exactly what that would do with respect to long-term bear behavior, but I, but I have not, nor am I aware of any study that has documented any sort of level of habituation and the probability of human-wildlife conflict following bear baiting. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's more, more you said it's, it's your opinion more than opinion. I, I think it's, uh, it's an educated opinion because you're drawing on, on you know, your years of, of knowledge and understanding of animal behavior and, and you know, investigations that have gone on and, um, you know, in, in bear conflict situations and kind of drawing some inferences from, from a bunch of different things. The piece that I would add on that is we are not allowed to hunt black bears anywhere in British Columbia with bait. And 
we have communities and regions in British Columbia that have rampant black bear conflict problems yeah. like Revelstoke and Smithers and Vernon, you know, so just that in itself, I don't see a correlation behind, you know, the numbers of conflict bears and habituation being tied back to hunters activities on the landscape because we're not even doing it and we have a big bear problem. Yeah. So yeah. that is uh, completely a, uh, a long-term reliable source of attractants that they know are associated with, with people in British Columbia. So, you know, my inference would be is that you have areas in Alberta where you can bait, but you, from what I've seen, don't have the level of bear conflict in some of your communities that we have in BC. Well, so. we, we, there, there, there are a few communities that do have a fair amount of conflict for all sorts of reasons. I know in the, along the eastern slopes where we have grizzly bears and black bears, many of these areas right. don't have any sort of bear baiting whatsoever yet, but there's a lot of people there's a lot of houses, there's a lot of gardens, there's a lot of fruit trees, there's a lot of restaurants, there's businesses and so forth, and there's a lot of waste. And as soon as you have a lot of people occurring up against the margins or well within established bear habitat, there's going to be some issues unless you can really, really manage people's behavior more so than the bear's behavior. The fears that the parks directive clarifying the use of bait in the wildland areas being a source of habituating bears to food habituation in people and leading to an increase in bear conflict or the numbers of conflict bears uh, is probably just not, again, not founded in reality or biology and probably not going to manifest itself in the few parks that this, this is actually going um, I, I to would, be allowed. So. Yeah, I would say... Given my understanding and experience, I would say it, there's low probability for conflict. Like I said, you can't bait bears in any provincial parks in Alberta. You can bait bears in wildland parks, and only those wildland parks that fall within WMUs that allow hunting of black bears with bait. So yep. I think the probability of habituating a black bear that would result in possible human-wildlife conflict is really quite low. Some some hunter would have to spend a fortune on putting food out. Yeah, you'd have to buy a, a lot of keep passing the bear up. A lot of old donuts soaked in, you know, chick, <laughs> chicken fried, you know, oil and or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. I've I've never hunted bears over bait because I've never hunted them outside the province of British Columbia. I've tried to educate myself about it. I'm not saying I, I wouldn't. I enjoy the spot and stalk method of hunting bears that um, kind of aligns with um, like what, what I like to get out of uh, a hunt. But I could appreciate in areas that are more dense where you can't, you know, see, where you don't have opportunities to spot and stalk, um, that it could be of value. I could see it if you're looking for you know, uh, a really, you know, big bear. Um, so you don't want to misjudge, you know, uh, a bear, a black bear on a green grassy hillside. They all look, you know, big from a couple hundred yards away. So have have nothing against the use of it 
I look at it, and, and I know this is some of the stuff that I've seen in the news and people are trying to influence, you know, this, this decision in calling it, it's an unethical practice, it's not fair chase, um, there's nothing in the hunting literature that's written about what fair chase is in hunting that says the baiting of bears is not, you know, fair chase. So in the hunting world, it is considered legitimate as long as the jurisdiction approves of its use. It's a legitimate form of hunting. And the way I've always looked at it is almost every type of hunting has some element of deception. Right. The hunter's doing something to deceive the animal. It's a duck decoy. It's a duck call that says, come over here. There's some good food. Come join us. Uh, it's an elk bugle. It's a cow moose call during the rut. It's making sure that you're downwind of your animal so that, you know, the wind's not blowing yourself to it. Uh, it's the use of a buck lure. Um, so a buck thinks that, you know, there's a, there's a receptive doe in the area and comes, comes searching. Like there's, there's all these different types of things in hunting that go back to the dawn of human civilization where hunters are trying to deceive its prey. We see it in the natural world with those angler fish that got the little, the little fish that it dangles on that, that, that thing off of its forehead and then bang, it bites it. Right. Like it's, that's deception. Yeah. There's a, Um, there's a long continuum of different types of deception used in the, both the natural world and, you know, the human world in order to obtain resources in general. And, you know, I think that continuum, you approach a point by which given activities, and this is why we've sort of developed ethics over time, that some of these methods of deception we find a little bit too easy. So I think that's where we've started to incorporate different ethical or regulatory um, means by which we say, okay, here's the line. And that line is never really particularly clear. When I look at bear baiting, so if we remove ourselves from the ethics and that ethical component for one, and we look at the particular ecological effects, there is a longer term study done by Sophie Chetvertinsky uh, in the 2000, early 2000s in regards to the effects of black bear baiting on black bear demographics. And what was, what was really interesting is that the age classes of males were truncated. You started to lose many of the older, larger males because of the hunting selection that's offered at a bait site. You got several bears to come in. You're able to judge and evaluate the size of the bears, choose larger males and select for those larger males. So in areas that Sophie studied this, she found the control area, which was the Coal Lake Air Weapons Range where hunting wasn't allowed, the age class distribution of boars in that area was older generally than in areas where you had a relatively high frequency and and distribution of of uh, bait bait sites, which is quite, quite interesting. But at the same time, at the same time, probably in very closely related reason is cub survival, which was much higher 
in areas where there was bear baiting, probably for a few reasons. That one, from a hunting aspect, having the bait allows a hunter more time to be able to discern whether or not a bear is with cubs. And secondly, yep. when those mature boars are removed from the landscape, chances are that the probability of infanticide occurring is probably less. So that was a that's a very, very interesting study in terms of potential side effects or potential consequences of that. The other thing that she didn't study, but uh, one thing I'd be quite interested in is on bait sites. What is the relative wound loss rate at a bait site where you're hunting in a very short distance relative to a spot and stock situation where you may have a moving bear or you may have a shooting distance that's quite long. So I, I, I think in terms of evaluating what someone's ethical considerations were should be reflective of some of the ecological consequences as well. All good points. I'm, I'm glad, you, glad you brought those up. If there's folks that are listening that, you know, that don't know or maybe think that, you know, the baiting of black bears is unethical, that um, this is kind of a little little bit of um, extra information or a different um, perspective on one on science and a little different perspective on the use of deception, you know, in, in hunting uh, doesn't necessarily mean unethical, doesn't necessarily mean unfair advantage, but in some cases, in some regions of North America that the use of baits, as Matt said, may be facilitating a more humane and more ethical way of harvesting black bears from a population because of the essentially the extra time that the hunter is afforded because the bear's interest in the food and exploring it and taking its time and, and approaching and circling and looking gives an opportunity for the hunter to be really sure and certain what he or she has in front of them compared to like what I do, uh, the spot and stalk things where it could be a very quick encounter uh, around the bend of an old trail or, you know, a few hundred yards on, on a hillside. So all good, good points. But even at that, folks are going to have differences of, of opinions. But I think the main message here for the topic of the use of baits clarified in this new uh, parks policy directive is it's just simply consistent with hunting practices and approved areas in Alberta uh, and it's not the parks creating something that is unfair or unethical for hunting in a protected area that's not already allowed elsewhere in the provinces and been thoroughly thought through so any uh, final thoughts Matt on this whole topic that we didn't cover I think this really speaks to you know the relevance of of hunting in the broader public and now that some of these directives are more broadly identified and 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 known by people are made are made aware of by you know governments towards you know the broader populace will generate conversation will generate interest it'll generate concern and that more than anything else is an opportunity not just to talk about hunting and the role of hunting but also clarify and get people thinking about 
what their relations or what their relationship is to wildlife and to natural places. And that's ultimately what we want to do as stewards of the public trust is let's establish relationships with nature. Let's recognize that people are a part of very much a part of nature. And in order to participate in a natural ecological process directly and take responsibility for those actions, whether or not you're walking and passively looking at birds or whether or not you're hunting and harvesting an animal by which you take direct responsibility for its use, for the humaneness by which you, you will harvest that animal and take it home and then value that experience in a different way. I think that is, that is something that we really value. So if the application and broader distribution of this parks directive can help stimulate some of that discussion and have people think about, well, what is my relationship to nature? Uh, do I live in a city or a subdivision? and I enjoy watching birds and the odd, you know, squirrel that comes around? Or do I have an opinion that's based more than what I would generally see on social media or television, for example? And I think that's quite important. Those are some great points. Great points to, uh, yeah, for for us to wrap up on. And I, I guess what you really articulated was my goal of covering this on the Round Canada podcast and just this specific topic is uh, it was an opportunity to hear some perspectives, to have a bit more of nuanced dialogue about some of the issues that are specific to this new parks policy directive on on hunting in Alberta. So um, it's good. I hope we have accomplished some of those things that you just mentioned, Matt, in in having a bit of a conversation, providing um, some perspectives, a bit of information, maybe dispelling a few uh, fears. But if folks listening want to contribute to this conversation, specifically to do with bears, hunting with dogs, the use of GPS collars on hunting dogs, uh, any of those aspects, um, yeah, let's continue the conversation. So go to the hunterconservationist.com website to the contact page and you can get a hold of me and send us your thoughts, your questions like for me or for Matt. And yeah, I, I think this is an opportunity if we're going to start a conversation. I'll put it back to you, the listeners, if there's things that you want to add, clarify, disagree with, or provide a different perspective on this issue in Alberta, we're here for you. Matt, thanks for coming on the show and uh, giving us some uh, good thoughts on this this trending story that was happening in Alberta recently. Thank you so much, Mark. It's always a pleasure to uh, come on and, right. and be able to do this. Absolutely. We we'll look forward to, to some more episodes with you before the end of the year. And Lee, I've already been talking to him on some, some topics. Good luck bird hunting this fall with your dog. Thank you so much. I, I, I'll have the opportunity to hunt with Lee and, and his dog. And anytime the two of us get together, there's always some sort of misadventure or 
you know, <laughs> hilarity that that comes to fruition. So, podcast worthy experience. Oh we're gosh, I I don't know how we're guys' adventure. I don't know how we're still alive. That's all I can say. No, you're doing something right. <laughs> Well, thanks for coming on, Matt. And uh, hey, everybody, uh, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada.